Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you out in the lobby afterwards. If you're first time at Lakeside, thanks for being here. And uh, man, some of you guys were celebrating last night, weren't you? I'll tell you what, I got up to uh, preach the first message last night, and we were down four to one, and then I got down from the second message, and we were up seven to four. So I don't know, something changed at church last night. It was great, that's what I'm saying. I was just a little worried that they might have used too many runs last night. Is that possible? You can kind of use them up? Is there a quota? I don't know. But I'm hoping things go well tonight, because if they don't, there's going to be some sad campers around, you know, nervous campers. And, uh, but that's okay. Some days are just like that. You know, some days are good and some days are not so good. In fact, uh, my mom used to read me a story about some days that aren't so good. In 1972, this 41-year-old mother of three, whose youngest son was named Alexander, wrote a book. And some of you remember this book. Some of you read it to your children, and it's kind of been passed along. It's been one of the best-selling books, children's books, of the last 50 years. And you might remember it because maybe you've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day at some point in your life. It starts out, Alexander wakes up in the morning and he's got gum in his hair and he went to bed with gum in his mouth, so these things happen, right? And then he gets up out of bed and he trips over his skateboard on his way to breakfast and he gets to breakfast and he doesn't get a toy in his cereal box. Both of his brothers got toys in their cereal boxes, which makes me wonder, why do all three of them have their own cereal box? It's the early 70s. Things were different. I don't know. And he goes to school, and he gets in trouble because his teacher doesn't appreciate his artwork. I mean, he drew an invisible castle. It just looks like a blank piece of paper to her. And he knew things were getting really bad when he went out for recess because his friend, Philip Parker, told him that he wasn't his best friend anymore. And Albert Mayo was his second best friend. That meant Alexander was only his third best friend, and that's not very fun to hear. And he knew that this was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Well, it went on from there. And every once in a while during this day, Alexander would say, I'm moving to Australia. I'm just going to leave all this stuff behind me. And then on the way home, they stopped off at his dad's office to pick him up and take him home and and, and Alexander's not paying attention, and he makes a mess out of things. And his dad says, maybe you shouldn't come and pick me up so much anymore. And then they get home, and he realizes that he has lima, they have to have lima beans for dinner. And he hates lima beans. Anybody hate lima beans? Come on. That's what I'm saying right there. And then he, ha- he sees a kissing show on TV. And he hates kissing shows on TV. And then he has to wear his railroad pajamas. Anybody hate railroad pajamas? I, I don't know. And he hates his railroad pajamas. And all he wants to do is crawl into bed and be done with it. You might know how that feels. And as he gets into bed, he realizes that his Mickey Mouse nightlight has burnt out. And on top of that, he bites his tongue. And on top of everything else, the cat who normally sleeps with him is on the top bunk with his brother. And he's just sort of laying there and he's feeling sorry for himself. And then he remembers what his mom always says. At some point, his mom told him, Alexander, some days are just like that, even in Australia. You just can't seem to get away from them. And you know, for the last 42 years, maybe parents have been reading that book to their kids because they just know that it rings true to the human experience. And that's one of the things I I love about the scriptures is they just seem to ring true to the human experience. I mean, if you were writing a book 
to try to convince others this is not the way to do it. All the failures are there. It's kind of laid bare. You read through the narratives. You read through the letters of Paul or the Psalms or the prophets. And you see the imperfections and you see the problems that life is so often unpredictable and out of our control. But you also see something else in the midst of all of that. At the end of his life, Jesus is sitting with his best friends, his kind of followers, the closest ones to him, his disciples. And he's going to the cross, and he's been telling them, I'm going to go to the cross. And things are dark. They're not good. They're all getting ready to scatter. And Jesus says to them, I want my joy to be with you and in you. And I want my joy, I want your joy to be complete. I want it to be overflowing, in fact. You see, the thing in the midst of life that can sometimes be dark and difficult that Jesus offers us is this unbelievable, powerful, life-changing joy. And I don't know about you, but I could use some joy in my life. Could you use a little more joy in your life these days? I mean, as we're headed into the Christmas season, can you believe it? Two months from today, Christmas is over. All right, it's not even Halloween yet. I get that, you know. In the stores, Christmas started in July, but it's going to be here soon. Wouldn't it be great to enter in to the holiday season with an extra measure of joy in your life? Maybe something that doesn't depend on your circumstances that can go up and down, but instead, Something that's deeper, something that's abiding, something that's powerful, that gives you strength. And maybe you say, yeah, that, that would be amazing. How do I get it? How do I recover my joy? How do I maintain my joy with what I'm going through in my life right now? How do I enjoy my life? Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is sort of known as the book of joy in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's really just a short little letter. And um, I, I just want to sort of give you a fair warning. I'm going to jump all around this book this morning. Some of it I'll share in the NIV. I'll read to you. Some of it I'll share in the NASB. And, uh, and so we're going to kind of be all over. So if that makes you feel tired, just sit back, relax, and listen. If you want to follow me and turn the pages or scroll on your phone, that's great too. But we have this little letter in the New Testament that's all about joy. In fact, the word joy, or some form of it, is contained 16 times in the four chapters. And that's amazing to me, but it's even more amazing when you consider the backstory of this little book. Philippians is written by a person who's probably the least likely to be joyful. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and he's in prison. He was in prison when he was in Philippi, and now he's in prison again, maybe in Ephesus or maybe in Rome, and he's also near the end of his life. And the Philippians loved him, and they sent somebody to help him. His name was Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus nearly died in prison. All sorts of things are going wrong for Paul, and he seems to be stuck. He was the least likely person at this point in his life to have joy. And yet the letter exudes joy. It's written to the least likely church to be joyful. 
this little church, this young church, they weren't large like the Corinthian church. They weren't established like some of the other churches in Galatia. This was a young church. And they're in this place that's a Roman colony. And in this Roman colony, after all the uh, sort of the wars were over and things were settled at that time, a whole bunch of retired military people settled in Philippi because they didn't want them going back to Rome. Rome was already overcrowded. There wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough water. And so they said, we're going to give you a ton of money. You go settle this colony. And so you had all of these retired military with tons of money and tons of time on their hands. And it was a wild place to live. And they knew how to spend their money. And you had this little, young, minority group that that were strange people. They worshipped this risen son of God, and everybody knew that Caesar was the son of God because it said it right on their money. So who are you talking about? There's another Lord, and his name is Jesus, and he died, and he rose again. And they were confused, and actually some people thought that the early Christians were cannibals because they ate the body of this risen Savior, and they drank his blood, and there was confusion about this strange little fringe group. And they were maligned and misunderstood. They were the least likely people to be joyful. And they actually lived at the least likely time to be joyful. The letters written probably around AD 62 or thereabouts, and Nero is on the throne. And Nero goes a little crazy, especially after the big fire in Rome, and everybody decides to blame the Christians, and pretty soon Christians are being set on fire. And it was the time, historians say, of the first great persecution and people are being martyred because of their faith in Jesus. It was written by the least likely person to be joyful to the least likely church to be joyful at the least likely time to be joyful. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like that. And here's why. Because anybody can be joyful. Anybody can exude joy so to speak when the sun is shining and everybody's applauding you and everybody's your best friend and things are going well and there's no worries in life that happened to me once 20 years ago where there was no worries in life (laughs) but i want to learn from somebody that's down i had a professor in college that said if you want to see a great boxer watch him when he's losing and you know isn't that the truth we want to learn how do you do this when life is difficult And so this letter is written by Paul to these Philippians and he reaches out in love to them because he wants them to experience joy. And so let me ask you a question this morning. When in life do you tend to be the least joyful? What's going on in your life at the time? Who's there? What's happening? What are you thinking? What are you going through? When are you the least joyful? Is it because of the people in your life, maybe? Are people the joy stealers in your life? I mean, people can be joy stealers, can't they? Is there a joy stealer in your life this morning? If they're sitting next to you, don't look at them. It's okay. You know, husbands and wives, don't stare at each other. It's okay. But maybe that's the case. We are relational beings, aren't we? And we have no choice about that. That's just the way that we're wired. And yet sometimes people can be the greatest joy stealer in our lives. This is what's going on for Paul. Paul's mission in life is to share this thing called the gospel, the good news that God so passionately loves every human being, that he gave himself 
God the Son, who came and became like us, died on a cross and rose from the dead. And now he says, anybody can come to me. This was Paul's mission in life. He wanted to share this good news with everyone, but especially with those that had never heard. He wanted to preach Christ and him crucified. And so that's what he was doing. And now he's stuck in prison, and yet there's other people out there that are still doing this. And some are doing it, and they're doing a great job, but some, some are doing it from these wrong motives. If you'll look down in chapter 1 at about verse 15, it says, It is true that some preach Christ. They share this amazing love of God, but they do it, he says, out of envy and rivalry. I mean, imagine that. The greatest news in the world, and you make a religious competition out of it. And not only that, if you skip down uh, a little bit further, it says, They preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. And so these people are actually attacking Paul. I mean, they must have been sucking the joy out of his life, and yet this letter exudes joy. How does he do it? Listen to what he says in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, he says, I rejoice. I've been reading this book for more than 20 years, and every time I read that, I say, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute, you rejoice over that? Over people making a religious competition out of it? Out of sharing the love of God from wrong motives? How do you do that? What about all the possible things that can go wrong when people do that? Maybe for you in your life, there's somebody that's sucking the joy out of your life. Maybe it's people. Or maybe it's not people, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your circumstances in life. Maybe your circumstances are the joy stealer of your life. And you may be facing something that's incredibly difficult right now, and you're thinking, I just want to get through this day. I can't even imagine being joyful right now. Paul's context, again, is prison. And what good is prison? How can there be joy there? But somehow he finds it. Somehow he's able to have this amazing perspective on his circumstances. And he sees them through a different lens than often we see our circumstances. At one point in in chapter 1 he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. See, he, he sees his mission in life, and he sees his predicament, but then he sees what's happening because of his circumstances, and actually, somehow, in the mystery of how God works through our circumstances, he starts to make these good things come out of it, and actually what Paul was living for, that mission, is actually moving forward, and there's more progress because of his circumstances, and somehow he's able to locate that and see that. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He says, everybody knows about my predicament, and most of the brothers and sisters that have trusted in the Lord because of my circumstances have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so he says, not only is the mission moving forward, people are coming to Jesus because of my circumstances, and the ones that do come to Jesus have far more courage than they would if they didn't know about my circumstances. Unbelievable perspective. How does he 
get there. I don't know about you, but I, I often don't get there with my circumstances. I'm like Alexander. I'm like, this is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, God. Help me out here. And yet Paul is able to exude unbelievable joy. Maybe it's people, maybe it's circumstances. Or maybe it's just stuff. You know, stuff. You have stuff in your life, right? You have stuff in your house. You have stuff in your car, in your garage, in your office. Some of you even have stuff in a storage unit. You might have too much stuff. I'm just saying, I don't know. But stuff, we think about our stuff. We spend money on our stuff. We stress out about our stuff. When was the last time you took your car in to get fixed? Was that a pleasant experience? And even if it was, did you like forking over the money for it? I mean, I get it. It's just a part of life. If you find a good mechanic, stick with them, you know. But we stress out about stuff. And stuff can steal our joy, especially when we're thinking about our neighbor's stuff and the fact that we don't have that stuff. Paul learned the secret of how to respond to the stuff in his life. If you're following along, look over in chapter 4, down in verse 12. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. And some of you know what it is to be in need this morning. You know what that's like. I know what it is to have plenty. Sometimes it's harder to have plenty than to be in need, believe it or not. But Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. And then he says this, probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. We like to take this verse and apply it to everything. He says, I can do all this, and it used to say I can do all things, and I think the translators have gotten a a little bit better these days. I can do all this through him who strengthens me, or who gives me strength. And a lot of times we take that verse and we sort of just tack it on to whatever we want, sort of willy-nilly, hoping that we can do anything. I mean, I'm about 47 years old, and I wish I could dunk a basketball, but I can't do that through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, I suppose he could do a miracle if he really wanted to, and that would be really cool, God. I'm just saying. I'd like to do that again someday, but my body doesn't work like that anymore. The context here is contentment. Contentment in your situation in life. And Paul says it's a secret. He learned the secret. How does he do that? Well, maybe it's none of the above. Maybe it's something deeper. Maybe it's worry or anxiety for you. Maybe that's the biggest joy stealer in your life. And some of you may be living a life weighted down or even paralyzed by worry these days. In another, in another letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul shares this long list of all these things that have happened to him, his beatings, his imprisonments, his shipwrecks, the people that were after him, the dangers on the road, in the country, in the city, false teachers, all sorts of things. And at the very end of that list, he shares that every single day he carries this weight on him. And that weight is his daily concern for all the churches. Paul 
loved the people that he came into contact with. He loved these churches. At one point, he tells the Philippians uh, that God is his witness, how he longs for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, because I have you in my heart. He said to the church in Thessalonica that I did not just share the gospel with you, but I also shared my life with you. Paul loved these people. And he carried the daily concern for them every single day. It was like a weight on him. Think about the weight of concern that you have for your children, your grandchildren, your aging parent, your friend that seems to keep on going down that destructive path and you're trying to pull them off, but they just won't come back. We live with concern, don't we? And sometimes concern can turn into worry and anxiety that's so destructive in our lives that it sucks all the joy out of our lives. So what's your joy stealer in life these days? When are you the least likely to be joyful? I want to share just a quick thought with you and then four sort of observations from Paul's life. Here's the quick thought. In this letter, Paul uses the word mind ten times. And he uses the word think five times. And I think what he's trying to do in this letter is he's trying to communicate that there's something about our mindset that is connected to our joy. For example, if you'll look in verse 8 of chapter 4, this is what he says. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In other words, there is this mindset that we need to practice as a prerequisite to joy. It's a little bit like what Paul shared in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he talks about not being pressed in or conformed to the pattern or the image of this world. He wants people to be transformed or changed, and he says, by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to actually identify what God's will is, his good, his perfect, and pleasing will. You'll be able to kind of walk into it. He says so much of it has to do with this mindset that we have. But he doesn't stop there. The very next verse, in verse 9, he says, So whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, in other words, have you, as you've watched my life, and listen to my teaching, he says, put it into practice. In other words, live it out. And sometimes we just need to live it out. We need to, our behavior needs to go in front of our hearts. We don't feel like living it out. We don't feel like loving that person. So oftentimes our emotions will follow our actions. Paul says there's some combination between the mind and and our actions. And I think what he's saying is that correct focus that is combined with faithful action leads to the type of transformation that produces joy. This is the formula in the book of Philippians. This is the way that Paul lived his life. And this was so much of the secret of his joy. That his joy wasn't kind of up when things were good and down when things were bad. He didn't live this roller coaster life. Even though his circumstances were often like a roller coaster, his joy was abiding. 
I think it's the same thing that Jesus was teaching in John chapter 15 when he says that I've taught you these things so that, your, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Literally, that your joy would just be overflowing, always that you would have enough joy. Right before that, in the verses leading up to that statement, Jesus is talking about how to abide. That he wants his disciples to abide in him, stay connected to him, to walk in obedience to him. There's something about correct thinking and faithful action that will transform our lives in such a way that it will produce joy, even at the worst of times. When I was 20 and I came to Jesus... I was a part of this college ministry, a large college ministry, ministry, about 300, 400 students. And there was a worship leader named Pam. And Pam had joy. And there was something about her face when I came into the room, and I, I didn't know Jesus, and I didn't know what all this church stuff was all about, but I knew she was joyful. And she led for a few years, and then she married this missionary, and they went off on the mission field, and they ended up in Spain. Last week, her oldest daughter, who was a college student, just died of cancer. Young gal, beautiful. And I've been following this blog from Pam called Through a Mother's Eyes. And right up until the end, and now after this, one of the things that Pam has exuded in her blog is an unbelievable amount of joy. Joy is not giddiness. It's not happiness in, in, the, in the terms of it depends on what happens. There is something deeper and more abiding about it. How in the world can she be joyful in the midst of all of that? And she didn't pull any punches in her blog. It's wretched. It's horrible. It's ugly. This is why Jesus died and rose again to defeat death. That one day, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that there would be a resurrection, a new heavens, and a new earth. How do people like that do it? Let me give you four simple observations, difficult to work out, but four observations from the life of Paul. Here's the first one. We learn from this little letter that Paul had a single focus he had a single focus the key verse to paul's life and the key verse in the book of philippians is 121 for me to live is christ and to die is gain for paul everything in his life was seen through the lens of jesus it doesn't mean that all he thought about all day long was jesus 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 it meant that he saw everything he saw the people in his life the circumstances in his life the stuff in his life the concern in his life he saw it all through this paradigm of Jesus. It's a little bit like what we've been talking about at Lakeside Church as Pastor Brad has led us through this series about becoming like Jesus. This is how Paul lived his life. He knew that when he died, things would be better for him. He knew that to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord was very much better. And he looked forward even beyond that to the ultimate new creation and the resurrection. And that's what he was aiming for and hoping for and this is what kept him going he was excited about that but he also knew that until the day he died he would live focused through the paradigm of jesus he says for me to live is christ at one point in chapter two of philippians he will tell them even now if i am being poured out as a drink offering which was this 
idea of death, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. And he says in the same way, rejoice and share your joy with me. Paul says, I am working for you all the way up until the end of my life. I'm not going to go off and just, and, you know, just forget about you. I will spend my last waking moments giving myself to others, as we say in our Lakeside playbook. And when I do, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to share that joy with you. And I want you to live your life the same way. Give yourself to others. And let's have this mutual joy that we share in the midst of it. Paul had a single focus in life. And so for you, for me, to live is what? What paradigm are we living our lives through? He had a single focus. He also had a submissive attitude. In chapter 2, Paul will kind of lay this out, and he'll also connect it to the life of Jesus. And he'll tell the Philippians at the beginning of chapter 2, I want you to be united. Quit fighting amongst yourselves. Head in the same direction. Don't be selfish. Think about others before you think about yourself. And then in verse 5, he'll say, have this attitude. Have this mindset. Live this way. Have the same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, for you and for me, he empties himself and takes on the form of a bondservant, and he's made in the likeness of you and me. And when he's found in appearance as you and me, it says that he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We might say these days, even death by lethal injection. And he does that for you and for me. Therefore also God highly exalted him. And that's where you get that famous phrase, this is all probably a hymn, an ancient hymn that Paul grabs and he inserts it into his letter that that Jesus is exalted and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul figured out how to live a life that was meek. We say at Lakeside in our playbook, we love meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. In fact, I would say that you can't even be meek if you're weak. Because meekness, by definition, is strength or power under submission. Power or strength under control. And somehow Paul figured out how to live that Life. He surrendered himself fully to the Father. And in that, it produced this transformation in him that allowed him to have incredible joy at the worst of times. A single focus, a submissive attitude. Two more really quickly. Paul had an unbelievable commitment to maturity. Paul never wanted to stop growing. If you were to read chapter 3 of Philippians, it will talk about some of Paul's story. Paul was raised in the right family. He was born at the right time. He was raised in the right country. He went into the right profession. He was successful in the right uh, uh, profession. Paul played by the uh, sort of the rules of the world, and he won, actually. I mean, he was on top of his game. And then Jesus comes along and messes everything up. I wrote a paper in, in seminary all about how Jesus messes everything up for us. 
because that's just what he does. We live our lives with these unbelievable, unchecked presuppositions in life. So often we are like the fish that doesn't know it's wet. And so we're cruising along in life, and we're living our lives on these foundations about what we believe about ourselves, about others, about God, about life. And when Jesus comes in and we allow him to invade our lives, he grabs a hold of us. And he begins to turn things upside down. He messes things up for us. But he does it in a really, really good way. And that's what he did for Paul. To the point where Paul had all these accolades. He had all of these successes. And he says, I count them but rubbish when I compare them to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He wanted to be found in Christ. Not having some righteousness of his own that he could sort of say, look at me. But instead, the righteousness which comes just by faith, a simple faith in Jesus. And he was always pressing on towards maturity, towards growth. It wasn't an accident that Paul had joy in his life. He worked at it. In chapter 3 and verse 12, if you're following along, Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this. Paul knew that he hadn't crossed the finish line. As old and as wise that he, as he is at this time, He was still striving for maturity, for growth, to live out this thing called the Christian life. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. And some of you this morning, you need to forget what is behind don't get trapped in your shame don't get trapped in blaming everybody else for your problems don't get trapped in performing for others don't get trapped being addicted to other people's approval forget what is behind And straining, this is hard work for Paul, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. One of the secrets to Paul's joy was his commitment to maturity. And finally, one of the lessons, one of the observations we see in Paul's life is that Paul had a secure heart. You will very rarely find a joyful person that isn't also a secure person. You ever see a secure little child, three or four-year-old, that's just so secure in their parents' love? Kind of the freedom and the silliness and the gettiness and just the life that they have. You ever see an insecure child? It's a big difference. As adults, we're sophisticated and we can kind of hide that sort of stuff. The Lord wants us to be free for the kind of joy that he offers us. But we've got to have that security there as well. In chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And then he says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And so, back up, dial it down, calm down, take a breath, because the Lord is near. Be gentle. Be calm. The Lord is near. 
Some of you feel isolated and alone in your journey. The Lord is near. Some of you have just lost someone. The Lord is near. Some of you have had a marriage that's been broken. The Lord is near. And then he invites us into a conversation. In verse 6 he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, this is where we cry out to God, say all the things and all the ugly things that are on our heart because he's big enough to handle anything. By prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, you won't find very many joyful people that, are, that aren't also thankful. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it's a supernatural peace, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And some of you today just need your heart guarded by God's peace. And when that happens, it will lead you to places of joy. And maybe that's what you need this morning. All of us at one time or another, like Alexander, have had those types of days. Or weeks, or months, or years. Because that's just the way life is. But there is a peace that is in you. There is a joy that is available through the Spirit of God. And I trust the Spirit to be the Spirit in your life. And all he asks is that we come to him open-handed and say, I need your help today. And so for some of you, maybe, maybe you've never really kind of crossed that line of faith and said for the very first time, hey, I, I need you, Jesus. You can do that today. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thanks so much for your unbelievable commitment to us that you aren't an absentee landlord, you don't sort of get us going and then leave and say good luck, but you are here every step of the way. And not only that, Lord, but you know what it's like to go through the human experience. And God, my prayer is that we would be a people that could experience deep, abiding, strong joy in our lives. I pray this morning for those that are in deep struggle, in deep distress, that you would meet them where they're at. That you would take their hearts in your hands and lead them to places of joy. And I pray for those that are, are doing well and, and things are going well, that you would make them missionaries to those that need your love, that need your joy, that need to know about you that they would give themselves away and in the process that their joy would abound more and more. And so thank you for who you are this morning to us and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.